and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I am your host. Back, I've wrested control from the AI version of myself that hosted last time we had an episode, and I'm here. It's me, the biological version, or so you think. Okay, Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not so possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on, and then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world that we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. This episode, we are starting in the year 2028. Hi, I'm a celebrity. You might recognize me from shows like Law and Order in Space, America's Got Singing, and the hit drama Boys. But today, I'm here to talk to you about something way more important than the way my career is teetering on the edge of sustainability. Today, I'm here to talk to you about voting. That's right, voting. Your civic duty, your great American right, the way you can shape the future. And this year, voting is easier than ever. As long as you're over 16 and live in the United States, you can vote. It's that simple. Now you might be wondering, well, wait a minute, famous dude, I couldn't vote last time. I'm not a citizen, or I have a felony. Well, I'm here to tell you that this year, it doesn't matter. I too am not a citizen, and I too have a felony. And this year, I get to vote. Thanks to the 31st Amendment, voting is now open to anybody over 16 who lives here in the United States. That's it. It's that simple. Don't you want to have a say in picking our next leader? I know I do. So join me. Get to the polls and vote. As you probably know, there is a big election here in the United States next week. If you live in the U.S., you have likely been inundated with messages about candidates, propositions, and just the overall urge to vote. And you should absolutely vote if you have that right. Not just for the president, but also for all of the candidates that are running locally and statewide. But today, we are talking about the folks who don't have that right. And what would happen if they did? Shout out to listener Aviva Levin, who wrote in and inspired this episode, by the way. So let's start with a little bit of history, shall we? When the United States was founded, only a tiny sliver of people living in this newly formed country were actually allowed to vote. In fact, the United States Constitution, as written in 1791, does not include the concept of the right to vote anywhere in it. When it talks about voting, it's always as a procedural process, not as some big-picture right that people should have. In general, states are the ones who set voting rights, so rules can and do vary by state. But in practice, when the country was founded, it was almost exclusively white men who owned land who could vote. The people that actually voted for George Washington and Thomas Jefferson comprised maybe 20% of the 18-year and older folks. Um, so, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a minority, ruled by in the minority. This is Dr. Ron Hayduck, a professor of political science at San Francisco State University and the author of a book called Democracy for All. And over time, the property-less white males were included, uh, fought their way for inclusion. In 1870, the 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution ostensibly prevented states from denying the right to vote on grounds of, quote, race, color, or previous condition of servitude. But, of course, we know that Black Americans were indeed denied that right in other ways for a long time after that. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. In 1920, women were given the right to vote. We covered that on a past episode of the show called 1919. 
1971, the voting age was lowered from 21 to 18 after people who were eligible to be drafted to fight in the Vietnam War argued that if they could be asked to die for their country, they should probably be allowed to vote. But even today, there are still lots of people who live in the United States who do not have the right to vote in a presidential election like the one that is about to happen here on November 3rd. In most states, anybody in jail for a felony cannot vote on the 3rd. In many states, even folks out of jail but with a past felony conviction cannot vote on the 3rd. In almost all states, anybody who has been found, quote, mentally incompetent or of, quote, unsound mind cannot vote on the 3rd. And in some states, this can include anyone who has been placed under conservatorship. U.S. citizens living in territories like Puerto Rico and Guam can't vote for the president on Tuesday, nor can anybody under 18. And the approximately 22 million adults living in the United States today who are not citizens also cannot vote. The outcome of the election will impact all of these groups. In some cases, the outcome will probably impact them more than those who can vote. So what if they could cast ballots? What would that be like? That is what we are going to dive into today, a future where far more people living in the United States are given the ability to vote in local and national elections. Election laws can actually shape the scope, not just of the franchise, but thereby they can influence the outcome of elections. So let's start with perhaps the largest group of people who cannot vote in the upcoming election, non-citizens. There's like 23 million non-citizens in the United States. Okay, 23 million. That's like almost 10%, a little less. And they work in every, you know, arena, every sector from uh, including and especially, of course, you know, frontline workers we all depend on. um, And they make countless economic, social, cultural contributions to their communities every day. Um, but they're excluded from selecting representatives who make policies that affect them on a daily basis. Non-citizens pay billions of dollars in taxes every year. They send their kids to schools, they work and shop and do all of the things that citizens do. And in fact, and this is something that I had no idea about until I started researching this episode, non-citizens were allowed to vote in the U.S. for a really long time. I like to say that... um, Immigrant voting is older than our national pastime, baseball, which is happening right now. You know, the World Series and the playoffs. Um, Who are you rooting for? Well, my team's long got out of it, you know, the New York Mets, but... um, Oh, it's also my team! (laughs) Well, geez, look at that. I knew there was something I liked about you there, Rose. Okay, cool. From 1776 to 1926, as many as 40 states allowed non-citizens to vote in local, state, and even federal elections. Non-citizens even held office. Ron writes in his book, quote, The notion that non-citizens should have the vote is older, was practiced longer, and is more consistent with democratic ideals than the idea that they should not. In other words, non-citizens have a longer history of being allowed to vote in the U.S. than not being allowed to vote. So what changed? Immigrant voting spread and was rolled back at different periods of time in American history, um, partly because of the different um, consequences that immigrants played in elections <laughs> or in the, um, the American culture and polity more broadly. Basically, non-citizens started actually influencing policy. When larger numbers of immigrants came, like the Irish um, Uh, and German who were not uh, supporters of slavery, (laughs) uh, where they were opposed, but um, uh, as, um, and and the South um, had their first plank in the Confederate Constitution uh, outlawed immigrant voting and said, you know, you couldn't vote unless you were born in the United States. That policy was rolled back when the Confederates lost the Civil War. But eventually, even union states started to worry that immigrants might wind up changing the outcome of elections. 
We're talking about, you know, 14 to 15% of the population is foreign born at, uh, at this point. Um, they actually became significant as voters. They had impacts. <laughs> they could determine the, you know, that's the whole point of elections, right? The, the, they can determine the winners and losers and, um, and shape some of the issues that, and public policy that uh, is enacted and uh, the direction of government. And these immigrants did vote. In fact, in the late 1800s, voter turnout was really high compared to today. Between 1840 and um, like 1900, something like 70 to 80 percent of those eligible people actually voted in presidential and congressional elections. For politicians, this meant that they actually had to represent the people, to talk to them, to learn what they wanted. You had worker movements and really high political engagement. People wanted to vote, and they did. They saw their vote as a powerful thing to wield. And it was. Then, in 1870, the 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution was ratified, which prevented states from denying the right to vote to Black Americans. And that was kind of the last straw for powerful, almost entirely white politicians who absolutely did not want to have to answer to folks who they saw as below them. Between 1870 and 1924, a whole barrage of new voting laws and practices were pushed through by these politicians. Things like poll taxes, literacy tests, grandfather clauses, restrictive residency requirements, voter registration procedures, and, uh, you know, the repeal of immigrant voting um, reduced voter participation down to 49% of the eligible electorate in 1924. So basically almost cut voter participation in half. Um, so these techniques really quite worked. And that huge drop in voter turnout, it hasn't gotten much better today. In 2016, just 60% of eligible voters showed up to vote in the federal election. And in local elections, that number is even lower, down to around 20%. The 15th Amendment made it such that they couldn't legally bar Black Americans from voting. But they could pass laws about immigrants. So they did. By 1926, all states had put an end to immigrant voting rights. Fun fact, Arkansas was the last state to ban non-citizen voting. This history, I think, is very um, significant because it really did limit more democratic, inclusive, and progressive possibilities in the United States for decades. In 1965, the Voting Rights Act banned a lot of the discriminatory practices that kept many Black Americans from voting. At least in theory, voter suppression is still very much alive and well in the United States. And more recently, in 2013, the Supreme Court made it much harder to enforce that law. But the Voting Rights Act did not undo all those state bans on non-citizen voting. And Ron argues that we should undo them. We should go back to letting non-citizens vote the way we used to. You know, it certainly runs counter to the popular slogan of the American Revolution, no taxation without representation, and, um, you know, fundamental preconditions for uh, a functional democracy, uh, let alone a robust civic engagement and democratic practice. Excluding non-citizens from voting has real impacts not just on the nation, but on those non-citizens themselves. I wouldn't say that they have no voice in policy. There are ways to influence the world that do not involve voting, but they don't have a direct say in who gets elected. And those elections matter. And in some communities, non-citizens aren't just a few folks here and there. They're big groups who are not represented, even though the choices of those politicians impact them and their families directly. That's a lot of folks, you know, like one almost in 10 nationally and in several states and localities where they're concentrated, you know, that proportion can rise to like one in five. In the New York City where I was, it was one in two in uh, Jackson Heights where I used to live. And so, you know, this rivals the political exclusion of uh, women before 1920 or African-Americans before 1965 or 18 year olds before 1971 you know, when they were included. And we look back and go, oh, that was wrong to exclude them. 
So imagine, imagine if the, you know, 23 million non-citizens could vote this month. Whoa, geez, you know, immigrants could help determine the outcome of uh, certainly federal, state, and local elections in the areas where they're concentrated. And, you know, some of these elections are determined by small margins. Some big issues at stake here in this election, you know, if we look at COVID, the economic crisis, climate crisis, oh, geez, where do we want to go here? And uh, to the extent that immigrants have a stake in this race, uh, like the rest of us, um, they could help uh, maybe even, you know, forge um, collective common cause in ways that could really solve some of these problems. Around the world, there are about 45 countries that allow non-citizens to vote in some capacity, like Australia, Chile, New Zealand, Ireland, and Portugal. And today, even in the United States, there are some places that allow non-citizens to vote in certain elections. Including 11 municipalities in Maryland, uh, here in San Francisco, um, and in Chicago in school elections. Take Tacoma Park, Maryland, for example. In the 1990s, local leaders realized that some parts of Tacoma Park had a ton of non-citizens, including many folks who fled from wars in Central America. And so they were drawing the districts and going, you know, geez, it's not quite fair that these people don't have a say. A local law professor named Jamie Raskin, who went on to become a Congress member, took a look at the Maryland Constitution and realized that it actually allowed for localities to determine voting rights. So they did a, a referendum. They, they sort of had this debate among the residents in the town. Um, they did a referendum, and the referendum won, and then they passed this charter change, and immigrants could vote uh, in Tacoma Park since the early 90s. We are going to come back to Tacoma Park, Maryland in a second, but it is worth stating that chaos did not ensue. Non-citizens did not elect the next Osama bin Laden, which is literally something that opponents suggested could and even would happen. And these voters turned out at the same rate as their neighbors who were citizens to vote. Now, whenever you bring up this idea, there will always be counterpoints. And so let's talk about them. The main argument you hear against allowing non-citizens to vote goes like this. Hey, look, there's already a, a, a way for people to, that are not citizens to become, to get the vote, and that's to become a citizen. So, like, we already have a means by which people can vote. That's to become a citizen. So, like, they should just do that. And that is technically true. But if you know anyone who has ever tried to go through that process, you probably know that it's a little bit easier said than done. And it's only getting harder. In July of this year, the Trump administration announced an 81% increase in the cost to apply for naturalization. In 1985, it cost just $35 to apply for citizenship. But if Trump's proposal goes through, just filing the form will cost you $1,160. And that's not counting any legal fees you might incur from getting help with those forms or with the process. Folks who do jump through these hoops can wind up waiting years for their paperwork to be processed. In March of this year, there were over 700,000 people with pending citizenship applications. And for many people, finances and other barriers keep them from ever applying at all. I would argue, and immigrant voting rights advocates uh, at the time argued uh, and still do, you know, we can do both. We can increase pathways to citizenship and we can um, do this pre-citizen voting thing like we used to, um, which actually uh, helps people learn civics by practice and become Americans. Plus, there are plenty of people who live in the U.S., pay taxes, and are impacted by policies who aren't even eligible to apply for citizenship. I have students that are, you know, international students, or there's lots of people who work in lots of sectors that are here on um, work visas, but they're not eligible to become citizens. You have to come on a, uh, you have to be sponsored by someone, um, whether it's an employer to become a citizen or uh, a family member. Another argument against this idea is that giving voting rights to non-citizens would somehow dilute the value of the vote which is sort of hard to quantify and honestly, I think, kind of a silly argument. Others argue that non-citizens don't know enough to vote in the United States. But 
Ron points out that if you are a citizen, you can move across the country to a new city and immediately be eligible to vote in the elections there. So how is that any different? Other people say that non-citizens won't put the United States first, that they will have divided loyalties. Which, you know, is also a little, well, tricky, because, you know, it's sort of flawed to assume native-born residents are more loyal. There's really no evidence in the literature or any of the case studies looking at places where this is already allowed that this divided loyalty thing winds up being a problem either. As you probably know, immigration policy in the United States has become a really hot-button partisan issue. And because those folks can't vote, it's really easy for politicians to turn them into boogeymen without having to worry about it. You can tell all kinds of lies about a group of people and demonize them pretty easily as a politician when you know that they have no say in your political future. In fact, just to show how prevalent this is, there are currently proposals on the ballot in this election in Colorado, Florida, and Alabama that ban non-citizens from voting, which is, to be clear, something that they already can't do. In Florida, for example, they are trying to amend the state constitution from saying, quote, every citizen can vote to, quote, only a citizen can vote, which functionally means the same thing. A group run by a former Republican legislator raised money to put these measures on the ballot, essentially as a publicity stunt to scare voters into thinking that non-citizen voting even happens and that it's this big thing to worry about. You know, and immigrants are not a random portion of the population. You know, they're sort of marginalized targets these days. You know, like previously excluded groups without political rights, they can be marginalized or worse, uh, largely because policymakers can ignore them. I mean, you know, we do have some good representatives, but when the tough decisions have to be made around budgets or, you know, it's like, well... Who are the voters? Who are the ones that can help or hurt you? Those are the calculations that elected officials actually make. So maybe we should consider going back to the way things were and giving a voice to our non-citizen neighbors. If we did, they might have opinions about immigration policy, the wall, citizenship tests, the ways that unemployment and worker protections do and don't extend to non-citizens. It worked for Tacoma Park, Maryland. And Tacoma Park is interesting for another reason, too. Non-citizens are not the only ones that they have given the vote to. They also allow 16-year-olds to vote in these elections. And they've created mechanisms to allow citizens to participate more directly and, and effectively and candidates to, you know, sort of have a means by which they can communicate and be more responsive to their constituents in a host of ways that they've changed their, some of their election laws. And so, you know, it's not a, a perfect utopia, but um, it's a kind of interesting, uh, functional, vibrant, democratic polity. And, and there are these places around the country, and I think we can learn a lot from them. And when we come back, we are going to hear about the push to let 16-year-olds vote in the U.S. more broadly and how that has gone elsewhere. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. This episode of Flash Forward is sponsored in part by PNAS Science Sessions. Science Sessions are short, in-depth conversations with the world's top scientific researchers. In less time than it takes to drink a cup of coffee, you can, for example, find out how the Vietnam War draft lotteries served as a natural experiment for studying military conscription and public sector employment. We're actually about to talk about the draft on this very episode of Flash Forward, so stay tuned for that. But on Science Sessions, you can hear from Dr. Dalton Conley, a sociologist at Princeton University, about what the draft can teach researchers about future employment and military service. Here's a fun fact that I learned listening to this episode of Science Sessions. Did you know that in the first draft on December 1st, 1969, the capsules with the actual birth dates in them indicating who would be drafted 
weren't stirred enough. So if you were born later in the year, you were actually more likely to get drafted. Anyway, what the researchers found and what they talk about on the episode is that people drafted in the Vietnam War were almost double as likely to be working as civilian employees of the federal government 30 to 40 years later. Why? Well, you will have to listen to find out. Listen and subscribe to Science Sessions on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the demand for telemedicine grows, so does the need for connectivity. 5G meets that need. Qualcomm remains focused on giving doctors and patients superior, security-rich 5G connectivity. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash inventionage. I have today ordered to Vietnam the Air Mobile Division and certain other forces which will raise our fighting strength from 75,000 to 125,000 men almost immediately. Additional forces will be needed later, and they will be sent as requested. During the Vietnam War, almost 2 million people were drafted to serve. Many of them were under 21, which meant at the time that they could be drafted but could not vote. In fact, about 30% of American forces in Vietnam were under 21. Over 25,000, or almost half of those who died in action in Vietnam, were under 21. In 1965, the singer Barry McGuire released a song called Eve of Destruction, which starts like this. The Eastern world, it is exploding. Violence flaring, bullets loading You're old enough to kill, but not for voting You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. That struck a lot of people as unfair, and the draft reignited a push to decrease the voting age down to 18. This was not the first time that people had pushed for this, and it wasn't even the first time that the draft age was a piece of this argument. 18-year-olds were drafted and died during World War II, and they couldn't vote then either. And activists at the time made the same point. In fact, in 1942, a senator named Jennings Randolph had proposed a constitutional amendment to give 18-year-olds the right to vote. But it didn't happen. It wasn't until the far less popular Vietnam War that the issue was actually taken up. And on March 10th, 1971, the 26th Amendment, ensuring the, quote, right of citizens of the United States who are 18 years of age or older to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of age. And that passed the Senate 94 to 0. So now, in the U.S., Anyone 18 or older can vote. But is that enough? For decades, there have been calls to decrease the voting age again to 16 or even 14. Representative Jackie Speer introduced legislation to lower the voting age to 14 in California in 1995. And last year, Ayanna Pressley introduced an amendment to legislation to lower the federal voting age to 16. By lowering the voting age from 18 to 16 years of age, my amendment will allow young people to have a say in our federal elections, to help shape and inform the policies that will set the course for the future. From gun violence to climate change, our young people are organizing, mobilizing, and calling us to action. They're at the forefront of social and legislative movements and have earned inclusion in our democracy. Shout out to Ayanna Presley. AP. So if you hear this, Ayanna, I love you. Back when Ayanna Presley had brought that up, you know, it passed in the House. But, you know, the Senate, when you have corrupt people in a corrupt, in a system that has already been made to oppress and do all sorts of things, you get pushback. This is Ashan Dabney Small. He's 18 years old and he's running for city council in Boston. And he is telling as many people as possible about it. Before we officially started our interview, he ordered a coffee and he chatted up the barista about his campaign. I'm running for Boston City Council against Frank Baker. Really? Yeah. I am the youngest candidate in history in Massachusetts. Running for um, Boston City Council in District 3, which is Dorchester. Ashan has been involved in politics for years, already working for local organizations, volunteering with the Mayor's Youth Council, organizing for Elizabeth Warren. 
And now, running for a spot on the city council against an incumbent named Frank Baker, who was elected to the position in 2011. Baker lives in what's called Savin Hill, which is the wealthy part of the district. There are a lot more people than just Savin Hill. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever been to Boston, but Savin Hill is just one little strip um, in the middle of Dorchester. Ashan is running on a platform of reform, racial justice, and defunding the police. When it comes to problems, and I really thought that Boston was this kind of shielded city that has no racism. Um, It's very sad to say that we need to do better. We need to do better. We can't continue to allow this rhetoric of racism, inequality, oppression. He's also really invested, perhaps obviously, in youth engagement. You know, lowering the voting age, you know, to 16 years old. Um, Because a lot of things that were affecting me, I was like 15, 16 years old, and it was affecting me insanely um, because I didn't have the power to vote. And so that's why every single day when I do speak to the kids at these high schools, I encourage them to vote because your, your vote really does matter and it really does count. If you ever talk to folks who are skeptical of, you mentioned lowering the voting age to 16, you know, there are some people who say like, oh, you know, like 16 year olds, they don't really know enough. They're not, you know, they don't want the vote, et cetera, et cetera. How do you, like, what do you say to those people and how do you try to convince them? Have you ever asked someone if they wanted to vote at the age of 16? Did you ever, did you ever think in your mind that, Hey, they're seeing all this stuff on the news and they're like, what can I do? Oops, nothing, because I can't vote. Um, That would be my thing. It's like, did you ever, ever in your whole entire life of you living whatever amount of years you lived on this planet, did you ever ask a six-year-old, if you had the chance to vote, would would you vote? And let me, let me just ask something today. I want to give a shout out to my digital organizer. Her name is Angeline. She is 16 years old. Uh, I was, you know, she's so amazing at what she does. And I was talking to her about issues that she's very passionate on. And she started talking to me about the climate change. And when I tell you we had a good 45-minute conversation about climate change and why there is a need for that so our world doesn't end and so we don't continue to progress in polluting our air, I think that's a fine example of why we need to lower the voting age. Because then we're setting up for their next generation to be represented. We're setting them up for something that they can look forward to in their country. Why should we be the ones deciding their fate or their future? I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's right. And in fact, there is actually data about what might happen if we let 16-year-olds vote. Because other countries have done it, and they know how it goes. Then uh, something happened in Austria that the politicians decided to lower the voting age from 18 to 16. And I thought, well, this is a great natural experiment to figure out how the 16 and 17-year-olds react once they actually have the right to do something that they hadn't had the right until a couple of years ago. This is Dr. Sylvia Kritzinger, a professor at the University of Vienna. In 2007, Austria decided to let 16-year-olds vote. Interestingly, this was not actually something that young people in the country were asking for. They weren't pushing for it. They weren't marching in the streets asking to be able to vote. It was actually part of a compromise between two parts of a coalition. But either way, it happened, and suddenly all these teenagers had the right to vote. And so Sylvia and her colleagues used this as an opportunity to try and answer some questions and criticisms that folks have about youth voting. And it was a research curiosity uh, simply to figure out who's right. Those who actually say, yes, they're simply too young, they're not mature enough, they have no clue what uh, they are doing when turning out to vote. Or the other ones who said, no, actually, these are grown-up citizens. I mean, they are probably not yet 18, but still they can do so many things at the age of 16, getting married, drink alcohol, at least here in Europe, uh, and so on and so forth. So why should they not be able to vote, uh, deciding also about the future, especially especially as it will be their future. And so it was a curiosity simply to check who's right. 
Now, these specific arguments don't all apply to the U.S., right? The drinking age is 21, for instance. But 16- and 17-year-olds in this country do have other responsibilities. They are legally allowed to work, and about a quarter of them do. They pay taxes, they interface with the criminal justice system, they can be tried as adults in some cases. So why not let them vote? There are three main arguments that people make against letting 16-year-olds vote. Number one is that they don't actually want to vote, that they won't turn out, that they're not going to vote, so why bother? So Sylvia looked at voter turnout first. The 16- and 17-year-old ones uh, in 2008, when they were allowed for the first time to turn out in national elections, so in general elections, they turned out more likely than those 18-, 19-, and 20-year-old citizens. So that was surprising. These new, younger voters actually showed up more than 18-, 19-, 20-year-old folks who could vote. And that's good because there's a lot of research that shows that voting is a habit. If you don't vote in the first election that you're eligible to, you are far less likely to become a habitual voter. In fact, in Sylvia's research, she found that younger voters are more likely to feel empowered by voting, to feel excited about making change. Young people still think that they can change something, that their vote is important, that their views are important, that people, politicians, listen to them so that they can really make a changed politics. And they are much more positively oriented towards polit uh, politics and politicians also in their involvement, whereas all the voters get really cynical, skeptical, but probably cynical is really the right word in the sense that they simply believe that everything is already decided, whether they participate or not, it doesn't uh, change anything. Whereas uh, young voters still have this enthusiasm in the sense of saying, we can change something, we can do something. The second criticism of youth voting rights is that they simply don't know enough about politics, or they're just not that interested in politics. They're just going to vote randomly, or maybe even against their own interests. Of course, they are not as knowledgeable as elder uh, voters because um, they have not yet experienced that much and so on and so forth. But um, in general, the interest will make up for the knowledge, which is probably not there uh, to the extent and, uh, for older uh, voters. But when it comes to um, voting behavior as such, namely choosing the party, they know which party they want. They are to a certain extent, uh, good citizens, knowledgeable citizens, and they know what they want. And the third criticism is that these teens will just become proxy votes for their parents, that they'll just vote the same way their parents do. But the thing about that is that most people, regardless of age, actually vote the way their parents do. At this point, Sylvia says that she is pretty convinced by this data. We haven't found anything that speaks against lowering the voting age. And uh, there is a whole academic debate, I'm saying academic, not political debate, whether we should actually go one step further, namely lowering the voting age to 14 um, and uh, get those young uh, people interested in politics even at an earlier stage. Of course, giving folks the right to vote should not just happen in a vacuum. It should also come along with educational resources to help them understand their role how to vote, who the parties are, all that stuff. So what would happen if we did enfranchise all these younger voters in the U.S.? Actually, probably not that much. Because if you think about the amount of 16 and 17-year-old ones within the entire electorate of the U.S., then you realize it's a small portion. Uh, of course, the small portion can make a difference in certain swing states, for example, in the presidential election. So overall, it might not change that much. On the state level, it might change because these might be those small um, portions of voters who can change the outcome of an election. Um, but I think in the long term, it has a very positive effect in the sense that people uh, are getting acquainted to the registration process, are getting acquainted of queuing, of uh, taking the time to vote, of uh, informing themselves about uh, politics and so on. So you will have this long-term very uh, positive effect and a very important aspect also that they 
um, somehow have a saying in which direction the country should develop because in the end, what happens in politics is something that will affect them for sure because they are going to stay on this planet in this country for much longer than some older voters will do and still have a lot of say saying on how the country should develop. But we can say that younger voters often have different priorities than older ones. In general, right now, younger folks in the United States care more about climate change, for example, than older people do. The National Youth Rights Association, which Ashan is vice president of, has a list of policy proposals that include things like youth medical autonomy, ending curfew laws, a student bill of rights, and ending the youth minimum wage, which is just $4.25 an hour. The youth vote might not swing a presidential election, but politicians are going to have to actually start catering to and listening to this cohort of younger voters who they've been able to ignore for a long time, just like they've ignored non-citizens and just like they have ignored another group of people who have been excluded from voting, those with a felony on their record. And when we come back, we are going to talk about felony disenfranchisement, what it means and what it might take to restore those voting rights. But first, another word from our sponsors. So not every podcaster feels this way, but I actually love recommending podcasts to people. I don't really watch TV or movies, so I'm useless when it comes to recommending things like that. But I do listen to a lot of podcasts, and I actually really enjoy trying to figure out which show someone might like and why. And I also like doing this because it can be really hard to find podcasts that you actually like and connect with. So many of the best of podcast lists just kind of name the same shows over and over again, shows that you've probably already heard of. And no shade to those shows, they are good, but you've probably already tried them. But what about us like smaller indie shows, shows created and hosted by more diverse voices, shows that are not based in the United States? There is so much more out there. And a great way to find new shows is by subscribing to The Listener. The Listener is a daily podcast recommendation newsletter sending three superb episodes to your inbox every weekday. It introduces you to outstanding and diverse audio beyond the usual bubble of big publishers, uncovering gems from creators around the world. Shows like Answerable Questions with Questionable Answers, which recently did an episode called What Gives You Hope? As a paying subscriber, as well as with the email newsletter, you will also get access to a personal feed that can deliver the recommendations straight into your favorite podcasting app. The Listener is written by Caroline Crampton, a podcast industry expert who listens to dozens of hours of podcasts in order to filter out the very best to surprise and delight you. Listeners to Flash Forward can get two extra months for free at thelistener.co using the code FLASHFORWARD20. That's listener.co and use the code FLASHFORWARD20 for two months of this great daily podcast recommendation newsletter. Happy listening. This episode of Flash Forward is brought to you in part by Tavor. Do you ever go into the grocery or liquor store and feel totally overwhelmed by all of the beer choices? There are so many cool local breweries and cool, interesting beers these days. And I'm going to admit that I often just buy stuff because the label is cool. Like recently, we bought a beer that just has a dog and a costume on it because it has a dog on a costume on the label. But if you want to get serious about your beer aficionado status and support independent breweries, you have to try Tavor. Tavor ships the best and rarest beer right to your doorstep from independent breweries around the world. Members get to choose which beers they want, and they're constantly adding to the selection. Two new beers are added to the app every day. You pay for the beers as you add them to your crate and then ship whenever you're ready right to your doorstep. It's that easy. Download the Tavor app today and use the code FLASHFORWARD for $10 off after your first order of $25 or more. That's Tavor, T-A-V-O-U-R, and use the code FLASHFORWARD for $10 off your first order of $25 or more. Okay, so we have talked about non-citizens, we've talked about 16-year-olds. Now let's talk about folks who cannot vote for another reason, their criminal record. The Sentencing Project estimates that about 5.2 million Americans cannot vote because of what's called felony disenfranchisement, which is a term that encompasses a bunch of different things. It applies to kind of a whole collection of policies that restrict a person's access to the political process 
based on the fact that they have been convicted of a crime at some point in the past. This is Jennifer Taylor, a senior attorney at the Equal Justice Initiative. Technically, most of the 745,000 people currently held in local jails in the United States have not lost their right to vote because they either haven't been convicted yet or because they are there for misdemeanors. But voting from jail is really rare because the state doesn't really make any effort to get those folks registered and to get them their ballots. There is one notable and interesting exception to this. In 2019, Illinois passed a bill requiring the Cook County Jail to become a polling location so that folks could vote. But it is the only jail in the entire country to have in-person voting. All but two states have policies that ban anybody who is currently incarcerated for a felony from voting. 31 states have rules that limit who can vote when they're on parole or probation. And 11 states have policies even for folks who are no longer on parole or probation. So they're not incarcerated anymore, they're not on probation or parole, but they are still unable to vote because of that past conviction. These policies are different, state by state, and they can be pretty confusing, to be honest. But one thing is clear. They have a very specific and disproportionate impact. The Sentencing Project estimates that one in every 59 non-Black voters has lost their voting rights due to these policies. But when it comes to Black voters, that number is one in every 16. And this is not an accident. These policies were enacted basically to do exactly this. When slavery was abolished and African Americans were given the right to vote, states immediately got to work figuring out how to limit that right. There was still an interest in figuring out how to limit their influence as much as possible. And that led to the creation of policies that were aimed at restricting the right to vote in a way that would have a racialized impact, even though it didn't hinge on race. And there were a number of policies that came out of that and a lot of us have heard of a lot of those policies, like literacy tests and a poll tax and those kinds of things. And felony disenfranchisement is also a policy that came out of that. And this was, in some cases, very explicit. In 1901, for example, Alabama was drafting a new constitution. And at the convention, the man presiding over that process, someone named John B. Knox, said that within the limits imposed by the federal constitution, the delegates were there to, quote, establish white supremacy in this state. If we should have white supremacy, we must establish it by law, not by force or fraud, end quote. And to do that, they decided that anybody, quote, convicted of a felony involving moral turpitude, end quote, could not vote unless their right was specifically restored. And if you are wondering which crimes are the morally turpitudinous ones, you are not alone. There wasn't anything in the Constitution or in the law anywhere that explained what that is. And so it created a situation in which in each county, the uh, uh, official who was in charge of evaluating if a person is eligible to vote or not, they were in the position of power to interpret the language in the Constitution, and they could pick and choose who it applies to and who it doesn't apply to. And that lasted from 1901 all the way up to 2017 when the state finally passed a law that actually listed the specific offenses that were considered to be of moral turpitude. And so in a lot of ways, that was a victory and it was helpful because there is a list that is supposed to apply to everybody and it makes it a lot easier for people to figure out if this law applies to them or not. But Jennifer says that even with this new list, the confusion still persists among folks who might be impacted by it. Because the state of Alabama refused to actually do any work to tell people about this list and about this change. And there was also a lawsuit that was in court 
at the time about these policies. And so at the point that the law was passed, um, the advocates who were involved in the lawsuit asked the court to order the state to um, mount an effort to inform people. And that was something that the state was opposed to. And and it they basically took the position that, you know, um, if people are actually interested in casting a vote and being part of the political process, then they should be able to put in the effort to like find out this information. And it isn't something that it's the responsibility of the state to make it easy for them. And Alabama is not the only state where activists have been inching two steps forward and one step back on this issue. In Florida, in 2018, voters actually passed an amendment that would restore voting rights to former felons after they completed their sentence and parole, as long as they were not convicted of murder or a sexual offense. And this was seen as a huge win for folks working to get people their vote back. When the amendment passed, an estimated 1.4 million ex-felons became eligible to vote in Florida. But in the two years since, politicians in Florida have done everything they possibly could to make sure that as few Floridians were able to actually take advantage of this as possible. And I think for a lot of advocates, including me, there was something very uncomfortable about the idea of the people who are able to vote in a state being able to cast a vote to decide if other people are going to be able to vote or not. Um, And it feels like something that should come from a court and a court should say, of course, they should be able to vote. It's unconstitutional that they aren't and it should apply to everybody and that's it instead of it being something that hinges on, like, a popular opinion of something. Um, But at the same time, the fact that it was something that passed um, was certainly exciting and was a victory. And then in the aftermath of the passage of it, and we see the efforts to kind of limit the impact of that Reform, And I think that also illustrates um, some of the limitations of that kind of reform that is coming out of a referendum instead of a court. The reason that all of these movements are happening on the state level instead of through the courts is that there actually has been a Supreme Court case about voting for former felons. In 1974, the Supreme Court heard the case of Richardson v. Ramirez, and they decided that the 14th Amendment does include language that could be interpreted to allow for felony disenfranchisement. And there are historians that argue that that has been interpreted much more expansively than it was intended to be, but the language is in there and the courts have held that because of that, you cannot argue that these policies are automatically unconstitutional. I would certainly be in favor of an effort to kind of amend the 14th Amendment, Um, but I'm also not expecting that to happen anytime soon, so we'll see. So instead, folks are working state by state in this hard, uphill battle trying to convince local politicians and voters that denying folks the right to vote based on past convictions isn't right. What is the purpose of this kind of policy? Like, how is your ability to cast a vote actually connected to the idea of criminal punishment? Um, And why should they be connected? Um, I know for me, some of the specific antidotes I have come across that have made an impact are, for instance, situations in which a person 
loses the right to vote even before they have it because they may have been arrested and charged and convicted of a robbery when they were 13 or 14 or 15 and they were charged as an adult. So they were convicted of a felony. They serve a significant amount of time, come out as an adult and they're in a state where they're not able to vote because of that conviction and they were never able to vote. And and when you think about that in the context of an individual person, it's certainly haunting. When you think about it in the context of kind of a whole community of people, you start to think about like, what are we concerned about? What are we afraid is going to happen if these people are able to actually tell us who they want to speak for them and what they think are the right policies. This also gets to these big questions of what people think the point of incarceration even is. If it's punishment and then you've done your time, why should you still be punished afterwards? If it's rehabilitation, then in theory, by the time you're out, you should be able to rejoin society fully and vote, right? And Jennifer also points out that not only do these policies disproportionately impact the Black community, they also remove the right to vote from folks who actually know a lot more than most people about how, say, the court system works. A hundred percent of the people who are impacted by these policies are people who have been convicted of a crime and people who have had extremely intimate exposure to to the operation of our court system and our prison system. And when you think about the huge numbers of people who are currently incarcerated or who have been incarcerated in the United States since the 80s, um, to think about the huge impact that mass incarceration is having on our country and the fact that most of those policies are coming out of the political process, but that most of the people who have the most exposure to how that system operates are not able to participate um, in that conversation is also a huge problem in and of itself. And again, the politicians who run for office do not have to think about these people. They don't have to actually try and earn their votes, which means that they don't have to address their concerns about a system that these people know really well. The largest impact it has is on prohibiting political participation among huge proportions of people who have been incarcerated and who who have been convicted of an offense. And I think we don't have, we're not at a point politically, we're not even close to a point politically in which there are clear elected officials or, or candidates for elected office or like a party that is kind of consistently advocating positions that are representing the interest of people in that position. Much like with the question of non-citizen voting and even 16-year-old voting, those who are currently elected don't have a lot of incentive to work with or listen to or try and court these people because they don't vote, because they can't vote. And politicians don't have a lot of incentive to try and get these folks to vote either because they might not actually like what's happening. They might demand changes. But isn't the whole point of having a thriving democracy that we have a system that actually attempts to represent everybody living in it? Oh, and we haven't even really talked very much about all of the active efforts to suppress the votes for folks who already have it changing voter ID laws, 10-hour lines in underserved communities, purging the voting rolls, changing the voter registration rules at the 11th hour, moving voting locations, usually in Black communities, from a neutral community space to, say, the sheriff's office. The list goes on and on. 
these conversations get at a long-running internal conflict in American history. It does go back, if you ask me, to the the origin story and the origins of um, the American Republic, which, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag, to put it politely. That's Dr. Ron Haydick again. If you read the Declaration of Independence uh, as a very broad, inclusive, egalitarian project where many working people thought they saw themselves in that future as a more included, including even slaves at the time or indentured servants. America has long espoused this idea of freedom and equality, while at the same time not actually practicing those ideas and often, in fact, undermining the freedom and equality of all kinds of groups. I always like to say that history is a great teacher, that um, we can learn from our interesting, rich past. Uh, It's not to say that that's what's going to happen, but certainly it it sheds light on why we are where we are today. And it certainly does indicate um, options for where we might want to go and options for action that might uh, shape that future. You know, your title, Flash Forward, well, where do we want to flash to? It's kind of a nice, it's a nice thing to think about. I love that. Voting rights can sometimes seem almost natural in a way. Like, I had no idea, for example, that non-citizens could vote for so long in the U.S. But these are rules that we make and that we can remake. They're rules that are meant to exclude people from using one of the tools of shaping the future. If the United States extended the right to vote to all three groups that we talked about today— non-citizens, 16-year-olds, and folks with criminal records, we would add about 40 million new voters in this country. For context, in the 2016 presidential election, 66 million people voted for Hillary Clinton and 63 million people voted for Donald Trump. So what would happen if those 40 million people could vote? Everybody I talked to for this episode basically said, I don't know. But what they did say is that despite what some alarmists might argue, giving these people the right to vote would not lead to complete chaos. We can pretty confidently say that formerly incarcerated folks are not going to band together and repeal all laws, which would be basically impossible. And that non-citizens are not going to wind up leading the U.S. to, I don't know, like give away half the country to Guatemala or something. And teens are not going to make TikTok the president. None of that is going to happen. In fact, it's hard to say who these folks will vote for. I don't think that we can assume that they will vote one way or another, necessarily. Candidates are going to have to earn their votes. And that's actually the really exciting part of all of this, right? That is how democracy is supposed to work. Candidates and leaders actually answering to the people that they're making decisions about day in and day out. And in doing so, maybe the process will also feel a little bit less demoralizing and rigged for the rest of us, too. That's one of the reasons Ashan is running in Boston, too, because he didn't feel like his city council member was listening to everybody in his district, all of the people who live there. And I believe that a city councilor should be someone who's on the ground every single day in their neighborhood speaking and speaking to their constituents, speaking um, to their local um, small businesses and seeing what they can do and and help. I want to end this episode not with a lecture about voting for the next U.S. president, but instead with a nudge to spend the time to actually learn who else is on the ballot in your community and how you can get involved beyond voting. Yes, the president is very important. But so are all these other races. And depending on where you are, those can actually be more impactful, and your vote can matter more in those down-ballot races. Who is your city councilor, your mayor, your school board members? What do they stand for? We can learn a lot about political participation by looking at the people in this country who don't have the right to vote. Being disenfranchised has not stopped them from getting involved in other ways. Protesting, speaking out about their rights, and fighting to change local laws. And those strategies can be really effective. In some cases, they've made the difference between who can vote and who can't. 
Voting is important, but it's not the only way for your voice to be heard. And I hope that the energy that you're maybe feeling right now for politics carries beyond the ballot box and into board meetings and public protests and volunteering and all of these other ways that you can make better futures. Flash Forward is hosted by me, Rose Eveleth, and produced by Julia Linas Goodman. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hasselonia. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. Our famous person encouraging you to vote from the future this episode was played by the lovely Julia Linas Goodman. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. We love hearing your ideas. This episode was inspired by a listener. If you want to discuss this episode, some other episode, or just the future in general, you can join the Facebook group. Just search Flash Forward Podcast and ask to join. There is one question you have to answer. It's not hard, but you do have to answer it so that I make sure that you are in the right place. Some people think they're joining a Facebook group for the Flash Forward science fiction television show that was on sci-fi. Great show, not the same show. And if you want to support Flash Forward, there are a few ways that you can do that, too. Head to flashforwardpod.com support for more about how to give. If financial giving is not happening for you right now, I totally get it. You can still help the show. You can do that by heading to Apple Podcasts and leaving a nice review or just telling your friends about the show. Most podcasts grow by word of mouth, so the more mouth wording that you do about Flash Forward, the better. Thank you. That really does help. Okay, that's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.